Hey, mate, Luke Ford here. My guest today is philosopher Nathan Kofnis. Uh, Nathan, in the United States, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Israeli versus Hamas conflict is just dominating the news since October 7. Is it the same way in the United Kingdom? I don't know. I, I rarely leave my apartment, so. uh, but I believe so. Uh, and I've heard of protests in London uh, and elsewhere. But I assume people are talking about it. Why do you think there's so much interest in this this war? Like, it doesn't seem to have, there doesn't seem to be immediate rational empirical reasons for people in the United Kingdom or the United States uh, to, to have this as their number one story. Where do you think things that Israel does when Israel go to war so dominate the news? Well, and the existence of Israel is regarded as a tremendous insult to uh, much of the Muslim world. Um, not something that, um, I mean, when Muslims kill each other frequently on a much, much, much larger scale than anything Israel has even allegedly done to uh, the Palestinians, but that doesn't really trigger people's uh, you know, tribal instincts in the same way as when a Jew you know, stops somebody at a checkpoint and inconveniences him, or, or worse. Um, so, and Israel, the Jews and Israel have come to represent in, among the left, non-Muslims, Israel, the epitome of whiteness and privilege and ongoing uh, colonialism. So from an ideological perspective, it makes sense that there'll be a, uh, a focus on this conflict. And objectively, this has the potential to affect the world in a way that other conflicts don't. Uh, if this Theoretically, in a worst case scenario, it can draw in Lebanon and Iran and for whatever it's worth, uh, Russia would be supporting, uh, would, would side with Iran and, and the Palestinians. Theoretically, China could uh, not, I'm sure they're not gonna want they're not going to seek out a direct conflict, but they could be somehow involved. You, you can see in how this could uh, become basically a, a world war. So from that perspective, people have a reason to be concerned about what's happening. And why has this conflict seized your public attention over the last three weeks? Well, for those reasons, uh, uh, and also Israel uh, serves a similar psychological function that uh, anti-Semitism used to serve. Uh, it's, I'm not saying that 
anti-Semitism is as simple as this. There are many other, other reasons for anti-Semitism, but one of them is uh, people, people need scapegoats. Uh, that's what unites people. That's a way for political figures to rally support, uh, get everybody behind a cause. And uh, now, at least in the West, for the time being, it's politically correct to use Jews, qua Jews, for that function. Uh, so you need a substitute. And uh, the substitute for, in many ways, is Israel. I, I pointed out recently that the number uh, two-thirds of the uh, uh, resolutions condemning countries in the General Assembly in the United Nations are targeting Israel. I mean, that, that just doesn't make any sense. Even if you said Israel is guilty of everything that has been accused of, which it's not, but even if you would say that, it still doesn't make any sense that Israel would be the subject of such intense focus uh, by much of the world. And uh, I think a large part of the explanation for that is Israel is the Jew among the nations. And so would you regard this fascination with Jews and, and the Jewish state and often widespread Spread antipathy to Jews and the Jewish state. Would you regard this as primarily springing out of conflict of interests? Would you regard this as primarily something that's irrational? How, how would you understand the basis for this fascination and antipathy? Well, how to define interests is a difficult um, problem because acting. I mean, is it in my interest to act on my irrational impulses? Well, all of our desires are ultimately irrational. There's no rational basis for any ultimate end that we have. So if somebody has a desire to kill all the Jews because that makes them feel good, then we disagree, or, or most of us disagree with that. Um, our disagreement is also, in a sense, irrational. We we want Jews to live; they want Jews to die, and uh, uh, we prefer our way of seeing things. And we oppose people on the other side. But classifying their their goals as irrational is maybe maybe questionable. You can be irrational with respect to your means to achieve the goals. So if you think that you're going to make yourself richer or more organized or more successful by killing Jews or getting rid of Israel, then yeah, that's wrong. That's objectively wrong. Um, even if you kill all the, all the Jews in the world and all the Israelis, um, that's not gonna benefit very many Many of the people who would wish for that to happen will not actually experience the benefits that they they uh, expect. 
So in that sense, they're, they're objectively irrational and could be criticized. But those who just want to win in the tribal war, then that's just their, that's just their feelings. Now, is there anything about this uh, conflict and reactions to it, Israel versus Hamas, Israel going to war in Gaza, Hamas carrying out a brutal attack, killing over 1,400 Israelis on October 7th. Uh, anything about this, this conflict and the discussion of it that has most surprised you, most taken you aback? I was surprised by the support that Israel has received in, uh, in the Democrat establishment. Although this is obviously being driven by the octogenarian class or septuagenarian class. Uh, if the democratic establishment were under the control of Zoomers, then it would not, have, it would not be like this. But I think somebody like Biden probably sincerely cares about, about Jews and has a, a memory of, of the Holocaust, which doesn't really exist uh, among the Zoomer liberal generation. Um, you know, they, like, look at the, uh, the video of Jews cowering in the library of, um, what was that school in New York? Uh, NYU, New York University. No, it, it was it was the uh, isn't it the the Performing Arts School, the Cooper Union or something? Uh, okay, I thought it was anyway, whatever it was. Um, now, to a lot of to the to boomers, that's shocking. Like, oh, Jews uh, hiding in a room while while a mob bangs on the door because they remember they have some memory of pogroms and the Holocaust. But to, the, to young liberals, it doesn't, they don't have those associations. It's just white people, who cares? Now, those same boomers who care that, it, that it's Jews who are hiding in the, in the room from the mob, they wouldn't care if they were white people, even if they were Jews, but they were being identified as white. It wouldn't bother them. So. Th the young generation of liberals sees Jews the same way that boomers see all white people, um, which for boomers is shocking, but not, uh, but not for uh, the new liberals. Now, would you say that uh, universities either in America or United Kingdom, to the best of your knowledge, are they particularly dangerous places for Jews? I'm particularly dangerous. No, no, I mean, not by historical standards. Uh, and I mean, if danger is defined as you know, microaggressions, then, then yeah. But I mean, if you, if you walk through a, a pro Hamas rally and without making it clear that you're you're in favor of Hamas, then maybe you could get shoved on a campus. It's as far as physical threats go, I think it's not likely to go beyond that for the in the immediate future. 
Um, but there will the uh, the pro-Palestinian faction will try to will accelerate the purge of Jews from institutions like universities. So there'll be more discrimination against Jews. Although we do have this this group of people who are generally of older generations who are trying to push back against the anti-Israelism and which often borders on anti-Semitism. But they are not the future of the party. So uh, I don't think that their influence is going to last for very much longer. Now, discrimination against Jews in academia, how, how, how severe or how intense is this? So Eric Kaufman published some data on this recently in surveys of faculty um, at elite universities. It used to be, I think, 20% Jewish. It's 20% well, Jewish among um, faculty who are older than 60 years old. And now it's around 5% Jewish for faculty under 30. Um, so part of that is due to the fact that we're competing against Asians who are very high performers, obviously. So that's not all discrimination. And there are probably a lot fewer full-blooded Jews. There definitely are a lot fewer uh, full-blooded Jews than there used to be. But uh, the drop seems to have occur occurred much faster can, than could be explained by those factors. So, uh, I mean, it's clearly um, applying for jobs as a Jewish academic in 2023 is very different from doing it in 1983 or 1993. Uh, you're white, white being white is bad and being Jewish is just makes it slightly worse. Now, what about being, you know, highly self-identifying as a, a Jew, there's like an ethnic and, and a religious element to that. I would think that that would largely go against uh, university norms, at least for certain groups. It's it's kind of frowned upon to have an intense in-group identity, particularly on university campuses. Anything to that? Well, if it's um, presented as a religious identity, um, I don't think people will have a have a problem with that per se. And there are very few people who are, um, like there used to be Jews, uh, especially German Jews, who thought German Jews are the best. And it was very much a racial thing. Uh, no one would get away with that nowadays. Uh, 
or if, if somebody were said that Jews are they're proud to be ethnically Jewish. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that would go down very well at universities. Now, Israel is in part an ethnicity-based state, not not in the sense of many fevered imaginations that it's some kind of pure ethno state. But uh, anyone who's Jewish has has the right to to move there. It is the the Jewish state. One would think that this would just inherently rub left us uh, the wrong way because to be on the left th- does that not mean to have disdain for ethnic based communities and states well the uh the liberal attitude toward israel or in any particular situation is informed by many conflicting principles and interpretations of history and that influence how they should apply those principles. And if there were a, a, a white Gentile group, group that had been a beleaguered minority for centuries and had been subject to uh, persecutions uh, culminating in an attempted extermination and, um, and and that they then tried to go back to their historic homeland that they had left a long time ago. Um, that would be perceived like very differently by the left than if, you know, the British just tried to set up a new colony in South America or Africa. Um, it so happens that there's only one example of a people doing something like what the Jews, uh, what the Jews did, and who have that kind of experience. So, and it's not um, from a liberal perspective. I don't think it's. Uh, it's not immediately obvious what their position should or shouldn't be, uh, but the idea that there should be a place of refuge for this uh, population, I think, could be squared with the mainstream liberal worldview. Now, as a matter of fact, Israel is a multi-ethnic country, as people who have been there know, uh, you can come if you're just a quarter Jewish and you can bring your family who is not Jewish at all, you're a completely non-Jewish spouse. They, there are ways of immigrating, even if you're not Jewish at all. They've given Jewish status to large groups of people who uh, whose halachic status as Jews is somewhat debatable and who have no genetic connection to other Jewish populations. Um, so, you know, if Israel said, we're only letting in full-blooded Jews of certain ethnicities, then I don't think that would be accepted by the left. But the current policy, I think, 
from a leftist perspective, could be considered uh, uh, defensible. Uh, would it be fair to say that the creation of the modern state of Israel was carried out with a substantial amount of ethnic cleansing, that uh, the founders of the modern state of Israel did not see it as in their best interest to have uh, plenty of you know, Arab Muslims in, in their midst? So would that be a fair description of much of what happened in 1947-48? I mean, certainly that occurred. I, there were people who created incentives or, or moved Arabs around. Um, so you could call it, so yeah, I guess you could consider that uh, ethnic cleansing. Although I would, it's interesting that people only care about, there, there are many people who are moved around before and immediately after World War II, including hundreds of thousands of Jews from Arab countries. Um, and no one, many of the people who talk a lot about uh, the Palestinians being expelled from uh, land that was claimed for the, uh, the Jewish state don't seem to know about or care about any of the other examples of something similar happening, including to Jews. So that would be kind of curious um, uh, phenomenon that should be explained. So there, there are many Jewish groups and much public Jewish discussion about what's in the best interests of Jews, very hard-headed discussion of uh, birth rates and you know, the relative uh, ratio of Jews to non-Jews in, in the Jewish state, uh, this would be considered, uh, I mean, highly problematic if it was conducted by Europeans discussing, say, birth rates of Europeans versus non-Europeans in various European states. Is that fair? Well, yeah, of course. But so there's a double standard, but there's also a reason for the double standard. Like, you know, having consistent principles doesn't mean that you deliver the same judgment with respect to every case. It, you look at each case and and see what how the principles apply. And, and the, the Jewish experience has been very different from the experience of, say, uh, the British, and that is one of the reasons that Israel is viewed differently from uh, from the UK, where Jews, when Jews say we need a country in order to prevent people from killing us, there's a reason people take that argument more seriously than when uh, the British National Party says it, because people don't have experience with British people being a minority and being killed. So um, people don't have the imagination to think that maybe, maybe the same 
protections that Jews are asking for and which they recognize are required by Jews could uh, at some point be necessary for, for Brits. So maybe we would argue that that's a failure of imagination on their part, but there is a logic to, their, to that view. We know that Jews need it. We have no evidence that, uh, that Brits need it. So therefore, we, we allow Jews to take these measures, but we don't allow uh, Brits to. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. I'm just saying that's the logic, which I, I think has a certain kind of coherence to it. And extending that logic uh, would, would be perhaps to say that you can only understand the, the massacre carried out October 7th by understanding the historical experience of people living in Gaza, that it's akin to living in an open-air prison and with, with a hostile you know, foreign nation controlling uh, much of what goes on in, in Gaza. Therefore, while it's universally revolting, considered revolting to, to massacre civilians the way that uh, Hamas did on October 7, this occurred in a particular context of an oppressed people lashing out at their oppressors. Would that be a legitimate and fair extrapolation on what you were just talking about? So, I mean, that explains the logic of that of that position. And this is an, um, just an application of the, the general anti-white position, which is that the, the bad circumstances of non-white or people who are perceived as non-white is due to some white oppressor. And uh, therefore, they always have a right to lash out at whatever who, the whites that are in the vicinity because they're by definition the oppressors and they have to de decolonize them. So, uh, yeah, that's the, but I think a more, um, uh, more reasonable um, story about the context would include how we got to this, this situation in the first place, the total unwillingness of Arabs to accept a Jewish state leading to wars in which Israel acquired uh, territory and then faced uh, continued Arab refusal to accept their existence and Arabs electing Hamas, although that was in whatever it was, 2006, 2007, and uh, there haven't been elections since, but still that's part of the context is that they elected Hamas, although this was always Hamas's position that they would refuse to recognize Israel. And that, that they also had many opportunities to improve their condition. Uh, I saw Alan Dershowitz recently suggested that Gaza could have become like Singapore, which I think is an exaggeration, but there are you know, Arab countries that 
that are doing fine. And I think that if uh, the Gazans had decided to give up on terrorism and rein in the, uh, the those who um, who insisted on fighting Israel to the death, they would have been flooded with donations and uh, many countries establishing relations with them. Israel would uh, would cooperate with them. Uh, they, it's not impossible that they could have become something like uh, Dubai, uh, but they, that they didn't choose that. They chose, um, if you look at surveys of, of Gazans, that's a, it's arguably a minority that support uh, uh, terrorism. I've seen surveys with different numbers, but there's a, just a huge percent percentage of Gazans who say that they want war with Israel right now. So you can't have the, the inevitable consequence of that is that Israel will respond and make life miserable for everybody. So that's just, it's their responsibility to collectively figure out if, if that's the route they wanna take or if they wanna take a different route and then they have to get the, uh, that under control and stop forcing Israel to respond to them in a way that then they complain about. So at Harvard University, a coalition of more than 30 student groups posted an open letter on the night of the Hamas attack saying that Israel was entirely responsible for the violence that ended up killing more than 1,400 people, most of them civilians. Uh, what's your reaction to this? So I saw some commentators were saying, like, oh, look at what people are learning in college. Look what we teach our college students. But this has nothing to do with what's taught in college. This is about college and graduate school admissions. This is who they admit. There are people who would not have signed the, those letters who are more qualified than the people who did sign the letters, than the, the median person who, who signed the letters. Um, and a lot of the signatories come from uh, groups that uh, benefit strongly from affirmative action. So they rejected conservative whites and Jews uh, who, um, who who would have been on the other side of these, this issue and they accepted people who are pro-Hamas. So uh, The people like Larry Summers who are confused, why did this happen? Why, why did Harvard um, end up in this place? Nobody expected. Because you brought all these people on campus. I couldn't go to Harvard. I was repeated, I was rejected from Harvard over and over again. Um, now if, when Larry Summers could have accepted me, they could have accepted uh, someone like me, a lot of people with my views, then there would be 
Uh, they wouldn't have this monoculture that they are now surprised about and complain about. So I had a different reaction to to this story, and I looked at my own heart. I, I've never lost sleep over Palestinian suffering, and Palestinians have suffered terribly. It's just that because my group is in an intense ongoing conflict with, with Palestinians, I tend to just save most of my emotional energy for, for my group, but there's nothing in me that uh, denies that the large amount of, of Palestinian suffering. So I kind of expect people just to side with their own team. So I don't think these student groups really were uh, celebrating the murder of innocent people. I think they were just instinctively siding with their team. So is instinctively siding with your team, isn't this pretty much the rule in the human condition and we we all tend to have either hero systems or ethnic or, or religious national loyalties, and we don't, you know, we're not even capable of looking at them objectively, and we just instinctively side with with a team. And isn't this uh, thirty student groups at uh, Harvard signing a petition blaming the, the violence entirely on Israel? Isn't this just an inherent and and normal part of the human condition, which on the one hand sounds absolutely barbaric. Uh, on the other hand, there's probably some evolutionary advantage in just instinctively siding with your group. Well, people choose what group, what group to identify with. This isn't just along racial lines. I, I mean, why does the L, LGBT group at Harvard, why would they side with Hamas? They would literally get thrown off a building. How is that their team or their group? Um, I think the, the Nepali Student Association, I think maybe their representative said they, they signed it without reading it, which is whatever. Uh, but why would they be on Hamas's side or the Arab side? Um, I think that this, uh, and even Jewish groups, there are Jewish groups at Harvard that also cited, although who knows? Uh, I mean, so, so many Jews now are a quarter Jewish. Um, I, I'm even in my memory, uh, I, I, when I was a kid, there, there were a lot of Jews who were half Jews, their father was Jewish, they identified as Jews. Now it's a quarter Jewish and they're still identifying as Jewish. I, I don't know if it's going to last even another generation, the one-eighth Jews. Uh, um, I, I think a lot of them, I think a big issue is stereotyping Israel as white. So it's white versus slightly less white. Therefore, white is wrong. Uh, and, and then combined with that, Israel serves this, this function of being um, the country that everyone can agree is bad, everyone can blame for their... Uh, for, for various problems. So, so the, the, 
kind of the coalition of the unhappy people kind of find it natural to um, to be against Israel, even if uh, they would they would be much better off in Tel Aviv than uh, much more welcome if they went to Tel Aviv than Gaza City. And what do you think of these billionaires who want to know the names of these students so that they never hire them? And also, there's been a truck that's been circling around Harvard with, with the names and photos of students who signed the petition. This is called doxing, but they're not putting the students' addresses. So I don't think it's really a matter of doxing. But uh, the, the retaliation for signing on to this kind of statement is this uh, cancel culture? What do you think? I so the the billionaires who are behind the the, um, the complaints, and they're mostly, as far as I know, all of them are boomers. So again, it suggests that the re resistance is coming from that generation and. Uh, uh, pretty soon there's going to be a large shift away from uh, any kind of pro-Israel attitudes on the left. But is it cancel culture? I, I don't know. I mean, cancel culture is not really precisely defined. Uh, I my feeling about it is the left has used their power to expel everyone, basically everybody that they don't like from elite institutions while denying that there's any discrimination, any cancel culture. And now one time a few liberals are criticized or even lost a, one Harvard student lost a job, and uh, um, and uh, then Michael Eisen was removed from his position as editor uh, of a journal, which isn't a real job anyway. Um, and now they're crying that, about the new McCarthyism. I and how how devastated should I be about this possible infringement of free speech, given that the left has, has just purged all conservatives. There are basically no conservatives that can be hired now at many institutions, unless they're willing to lie and completely misrepresent their views. Um, yeah, I, I don't see that as uh, as the main issue. And say, so how would you compare what happened to Michael Eisen being removed as the editor of a journal to what happened to Noah Carl, who I, I believe lost his Cambridge scholarship over politically incorrect, uh, perhaps uh, somewhat race-based uh, essays that he'd published? So Noah Carl lost an actual job. Like he was employed by St. Edmunds College, Cambridge. And they told him, like, your card doesn't work anymore. You have to leave. Uh, 
Michael Eisen is a tenured professor at Berkeley. There's no suggestion that is his job. There's no suggestion whatsoever that that job is in jeopardy. So his position was editor of the journal. Now, uh, jobs, all jobs come with restrictions on your free speech. That's all jobs. Uh, it's my First Amendment right to go write on Twitter that my bad things about my students and called them names and, and whatever. But I'm not allowed to do that. And I shouldn't be allowed to do that uh, because my job is to respect my students. Um, so the job of journal editor also comes with restrictions on speech. You have to, the, the job of the journal editor is to be impartial and make people feel confident that he's going to treat them fairly. And that may not be consistent with all social media activity that would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment. So this is a, this is a very much a gray area. And it's also important to note that the right-wing version of Michael Eisen would never have been a journal editor in the first place. He would never be a, maybe he could have been hired 30, 40 years ago, but certainly not in the last 10, 20 years at Berkeley. Um, and as I uh, pointed out yesterday, in 2019, there was a search for a professor, assistant professor in the life sciences at Berkeley, which is where Michael Eisen works. And the first round of cuts to the applicants, applicant pool was made based on their diversity statement. And the university published, human resources published the, uh, the, the guidelines for scoring diversity statements. So if you say that you treat everyone equally or whatever, then you fail. You, you get uh, the lowest mark possible on your diversity statement. And uh, I mean, in order to get a, a sufficiently high mark, I mean, you have to go all out about how diverse your whole life is and your research and everything is all about diversity and equity. So just a, a, a loyalty oath to wokeism, that's far more extreme than the, the infamous loyalty oaths uh, in the McCarthy era, where you, you said that you're not a member of any organization that seeks to violently overthrow the, the US government, including the Communist Party, which they want to violently overthrow the US government. So those were the, the terrible McCarthy era oaths that we're always hearing about, how bad that was. But now it's much, much worse. Um, now, 76% of the applicants for that job were automatically disqualified because of their political views on wokeism. They failed the, the diversity statement. Michael Eisen didn't say anything about that. None of his free, free speech defenders said anything about that. Nobody cared. Uh, now, in that case, 
that was clearly a violation of free speech and academic freedom. I mean, the, your views on equity and diversity have absolutely nothing to do with your research in the life sciences. And they're not relevant to doing your job, uh, which is to treat people equally, which is exactly what they, what they said you, would be a failing answer for the diversity statement. So that's just a way of weeding out people with political views that they don't like. Now, if you're a journal editor, should you go around insulting large groups of people and being very inf politically inflammatory, saying, uh, using profanity with regard to certain countries where many authors that would submit to your journal live? Should you be doing that? That's very questionable. Um, and the, uh, uh, the statement released by the journal, the journal's publisher said that they were firing Michael Eisen because of a series of a pattern of behavior on social media. So it wasn't just one tweet where he retweeted the Onion article. Uh, but he's generally been very unprofessional on social media. And I can understand why that would be a, an issue and for his ability to perform his, his duties associated with that job. Now, the main petition that uh, objects to the firing of Michael Eisen says that it would be appropriate to file the journal editor if he was racist, if he engaged in hate speech. So, so these are Michael Eisen's defenders. In other words, you could fire Michael Eisen if he were a conservative because mainstream conservative conservatism is associated with views that liberals consider hate speech. So no, all conservatives, basically all conservatives will uh, be considered purveyors of hate speech by Michael Eisen's defenders. So they, they want to keep their guy and fire everybody else. So this, from their perspective, this has nothing to do with free speech at all. So th these, these are shocking uh, events uh, beginning on October 7, and now we're, we're getting close to 10,000 Palestinians dead. And yet my worldview hasn't changed one millimeter. Uh, these shocking events just confirm my worldview. I assume that these shocking events just confirm your worldview. And it sure seems when I look around and watch and listen and read pundits that uh, these shocking events just confirm everybody's worldview. Do, do many, am I right that uh, these events have only confirmed your worldview? And two, why is it that we have shocking events and they don't seem to change many people's worldview? Well, as I mentioned, I was surprised by some of the support that Israel has received. So I did have to make some, some adjustments to, and I was also, like everybody, I was surprised by the uh, the performance of Shin Bet and Mossad and the IDF, and that was really confusing. Um, I'm not. I'm still not sure what to how to interpret that that failure. 
uh, and understand what it means. There's, and certain, some of these events have made me rethink some things, but we already knew that the left was on the side of um, the Palestinians and that they were in principle open to violence against uh, in the service of decolonization. So uh, as far as that goes, I don't think there was much to be surprised about. Are you a Zionist? I mean, my understanding of Zionism is that it's the ideology that calls for Jews all over the world to, um, to gather in Israel. And I, I live in Cambridge and in Seoul. So it seems to me that that disqualifies me from being a Zionist. And I, I married a non-Jewish woman. I, mean, I think Jewish continuity and contributing to Jewish continuity is an element of, of Zionism, as I understand it. Uh, so, so it would be very strange for me to, to call myself a Zionist. Uh, I, did, I should. I support the Jewish state in principle. I, I support the the, uh, the idea of Jews having. Uh, the state and specifically in their historic home, homeland. And I think that they have a moral claim according to um, commonly accepted moral principles to that, that land. So if that's what Zionism means, then, then I guess so. But do, you think that, do you think the Jews have any more moral claim to that land than the Arabs who Let's say we'll talk about the Arabs who lived there for, say, hundreds of years in that geographic area that's now the Jewish state of Israel. Um, so I think that according to common, common sense or commonly accepted moral principles, uh, Jews have a very strong claim to that land. They were forced out. They never gave up uh, their claim to ownership for uh, 1,800 years. Uh, they, they pray three times a day facing that piece of land wherever they are. Uh, they, uh, they pray uh, every day to return to the to the land. So um, there is an idea in uh, certain legal systems that if you give up some property and somebody else acquires it or, or a piece of land, that they that the new owner, the new occupant, has rights over the land. But that doesn't apply if you continually protest. So if they forcibly take something from you and you protest and you protest and you protest, you protest. Uh, as far as I know, there's no legal or moral system which says that they 
they acquired, no matter how much time passes, that they would be able to acquire it if they're forcibly uh, occupying it against your protest. And I don't think that it would be a reasonable principle to say that people are allowed to steal anything they want and then um, even though you you continue protesting, if enough time passes, then they would be able to um, to be the rightful legal owner. This is a, a bit complicated in, in the case of um, Jews versus Arabs, because in terms of uh, uh, like genetic similarity to uh, the ancient Israelites, it's quite likely that the Palestinians share more genetic code um, than, say, Ashkenazim, with the, and even possibly by descent as well. Uh, many Arabs in that in that region are presumably descended from. Uh, from Jews, but Jews who gave up being Jewish and who only um, survived by adopting a different religion and um, essentially giving up the, the claim that their ancestors had made to the land. So I mean, it, that that is kind of a, I think that that does introduce an element of complexity into the moral uh, analysis, but uh, I think the Jews have a strong claim. I don't deny that Arabs also have a claim. I'm not saying that there's no claim whatsoever to having lived somewhere for, for centuries. They're not the ones who stole the land. They're not the Romans or who, uh, who kicked the Jews out in uh, um, the second century. So, so that's not their fault. And now they're being punished for this. If, they're, if the Arabs are now expelled, they're being punished for a crime committed a long time ago by, by different people. So that also is something that would have to be considered. So now, I don't think that common sense morality would dictate that Jews should just come and 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 kick everyone out. Uh, but I think the claim that Jews have needs to be weighed against um, the claims of others. And, and do the, the claims of Arabs whose ancestors lived in the land that is now the Jewish state of Israel and whose uh, parents and grandparents were, let's just to make the example more dramatic, were, say, forcibly expelled from what is now Israel, do they not have a very strong claim to the land as well? Well, they have a claim. Jews have a claim. So, and uh, then... Jews collectively may also have a claim to a, a Jewish state. Um, and that claim then could be violated by uh, 
bringing in large numbers of non-Jews. So, you know, there's no objective answer to, to, to how these, these questions should be decided or which claim you judge to be uh, stronger. But, right. you know, the, the vast majority of Israelis are willing to accept living on a small fraction of what was their original homeland uh, in exchange for peace. Um, now, th there are obviously uh, Zionists who want everything, and uh, but if there were a real prospect of peace, uh, Israelis would definitely get those people under control, and they would not be sitting at the border with the Arab countries, uh, you know, firing rockets at them and uh, and trying to massacre their civilians. So um, the a compromise that would respect the claims of, of everyone to some degree would be, uh, would include a, a Jewish state that is smaller than, much smaller than the original mandate for Palestine and their original um, homeland of Eretz Israel. Do you have a more intense Jewish identity now as a result of the October 7 attacks? No, I don't, I don't think so. I, I uh, because no, it's not, uh, I always have cared about the, um, the existence of Israel. I think it's a good thing to uh, to have the Jewish state, and I have some connection being uh, with that being Jewish myself. Uh, so I'm paying more attention to it now that we're uh, the Jewish state is under threat in a way that it. Uh, uh, hasn't been for a long time, and I think the prospect of another extermination of Jews, uh, while not not likely, is at least conceivable in a way that it wasn't um, just a few weeks ago, and I would uh, be interested in preventing that. Uh, so obsessive is a very common put-down used against people who have more interest in a particular topic than the descriptor thinks is uh, appropriate. Uh, what's an adaptive and appropriate level of uh, interest in Jews and the Jewish state for, say, non-Jews? Well, that depends what their goal is. If their goal is to... Um, get a lot of Twitter followers or um, start a um, kind of uh, fringe dissident movement, um, 
then being openly anti-Semitic is a, is a very good idea because that would, that would advance the goal. Uh, if they want to um, uh, get status among the mainstream left, then they can focus on Israel and why Israel is bad. Now, but then for the average person, like, will the average person's life become better by killing Jews or killing all the Jews in Israel or getting rid of Israel, then no, clearly not at all. The world will become a worse place if, for, the, for, for the vast majority of people. Possibly even for many of the Palestinians themselves, if uh, um, Hamas or, or something like Hamas um, is allowed to establish a state on the ashes of Israel, um, the lot of the average Palestinian could well become uh, much worse. Um, although maybe they would prefer to be terrorized by, by someone who looks like them rather than somebody who looks slightly different and who is Jewish. Um, because maybe that's that's human nature, but uh, yeah, I'm, a lot of a lot of this stuff I think is irrational to the extent that it's motivated by either false beliefs about about Israel or false beliefs about the wonderful benefits that would come from from getting rid of Israel. We hear a lot about anti-Semitism. Is there such a thing as anti-Gentilism among Jews? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, why not? I mean, in this respect, I don't think there's a big difference between Jews and Gentiles. Um, I mean, Jews um, there are many Jews who quit being Jewish and then join the pogromists. And there are many Jews who support um, the most vicious and genocidal anti-Israelism. And within the Jewish community, um, um, I mean, Gentiles have a There can be anti-Gentile attitudes that are just rooted in bigotry. I mean, the same reason that uh, Gentiles are, look for other people to blame. Jews would blame Gentiles, and it feels some people are going to feel good when they hate others. So there, there are certainly Jews like that. So you have a tweet that Jews have some responsibility for the diversity golem that is beginning to turn on them. Is there any significant difference between, say, Jew, Jewish attitudes to diversity and political correctness and, say, uh, WASP attitudes towards diversity? I mean, I, I think when you account for levels of secular education and or IQ, there don't seem to be many differences in political attitudes between wasps and, and Jews. Yeah, there was wasp 
uh, wasp self-hatred was uh, a very much a thing that developed without Jewish influence. Uh, wasps, there, there was a, a generation of wasp intellectuals who decided that wasps are boring, everybody else is, is uh, more, more exciting and, and, uh, and we need more non-wasps and it's an embarrassing to be wasp. Then Jews also kind of jumped on this bandwagon and, and they continue and they, they helped promote these ideas, obviously. Um, but the, a lot of the, uh, uh, the Jewish support for diversity was rooted in a similar kind of self-hatred uh, as it was in wasps, which is this is against the the, you know, the McDonald nar narrative. Uh, it was a plan to advance Jewish interests. I, I mean, obviously, there were some Jews who thought that um, one of the benefits of this movement would be that there wouldn't be there, there would be less anti-Semitism, uh, but for and for the most part, Jews have identified as white, and Jewish liberals see themselves as among the bad guys. But they didn't anticipate, and they just didn't take non-whites seriously. I think they thought that they would. They would always be under the control of the white liberal intellectual class, um, and you know they could have some Black Panther kind of groups, but that was just kind of cute acting out, not something that they took really seriously. And yes, this is the golem that now. It's turning on them. So supporters of Israel have often decried Palestinians not trying to achieve their means through peaceful means. And then Palestinians and their supporters develop BDS, boycott, divest, and sanction, which is a nonviolent way of promoting the, the Palestinian agenda. So do you see BDS as a you know a legitimate tool, or do you think BDS is something that needs to be opposed? I mean, so I, I disagree with, with the end, obviously, and uh, you know, engaging in, if we're going to have norms of uh, political discourse and negotiation, having people gang up on the uh, on the group that you don't like to deprive them of uh, basic material needs is uh, very questionable. Um, that we want to live in a world where people act like that. So generally, we agree not to do that kind of thing. 
Uh, it's like, uh, you know, taking away the, the credit cards of the bank accounts of racists. Um, even though in many cases, I probably disagree with the people whose bank accounts were, were taken away. Uh, I don't agree with that tactic because um, we should try to create conditions where we can resolve resolve things in a, uh, in a peaceful, rational way. Um, and BDS, basically an act of war. So then I guess we would just, we're not, if, uh, if it's a war, then there's no more negotiation and you just fight with all, all the means available. But that, that I think is not really desirable. But, but doesn't that then reveal that that was just empty posturing when supporters of Israel asked for, for Palestinians to develop nonviolent means of pursuing their cause, then Palestinians do exactly that. And you couldn't overstate the the opposition to BDS from pro-Israel sources. So does that not show that the the call by pro-Israel supporters for Palestinians to develop nonviolent uh, means of pursuing their goals, uh, that was just empty posturing? Well, I'm not familiar with those calls for Palestinians to adopt nonviolent means. So if the Palestinian goal is the destruction of the state of Israel, and you say adopt nonviolent means to achieve your goal, then that would be absurd because the goal could only be achieved through uh, through violence. So why would you say to adopt means that could never work to achieve your goal? If somebody said that, then that, yes, that would be just posturing. And uh, what about a, a one-state solution where you know Arabs, Palestinians? Israelis, uh, Jews uh, live together in one state that uh, will be demographically tipping Arab. Do you think that would be a humanitarian disaster or do you think that would be a moral improvement on the current situation? Well, there would just be uh, 15 million people murdering each other. I don't See how anyone could think that's desirable. Um, well, I guess Jews would would probably be the losers in that scenario. I think the Arabs would kill more Jews than in hand to hand combat. There would be more Arabs uh, coming in, and a lot of Jewish peaceniks wouldn't last that long. Um, so that would just be giving everything to the Arabs, including the lives of all, all the Jews living in Israel, is the most likely outcome. Are there any critics of the Jewish state of Israel who you accord respect? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, if you suggest some names, maybe I could, I could comment on them. I mean, I... I'm not that interested in the day-to-day -day commentary about, you know, the, 
why why did Israel confiscate this well and what was the principle and was the the well was dug illegally but did they have some reason why they dug the well and that's a lot, a lot of like Israel commentaries about that kind of thing um, which I see as kind of not very um, uh, closely related to the the core moral issue, which is what I'm interested in, which is who has a claim uh, to the land and in principle, should you have a right to defend yourself against the kind of aggression that we've seen. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the most interesting um, challenge to Israel is the idea that the Palestinians really are the uh, the uh, indigenous people of this land, that they're descended, that uh, they have a closer connection to, by descent to the Israelites than uh, other, than Jewish populations, the people who identify as Jewish. So maybe that would be the only, one of the few uh, critiques of the, uh, the Israeli position that I think um, deserves to be thought about. Uh, but most you... of the stuff that, yeah. No, go yeah. ahead, finish your point. But most of the stuff that people say about Israel turns out to be very questionable or just made up in my experience. So do you have history with Israel? Have you visited? Have you spent much time there? I spent about a year in Israel. I studied at the yeshiva in Jerusalem. And how did that affect you? And how does that continue to affect you, if at all? I, uh, well, I, I learned about Judaism. Uh, I, uh, I was motivated to sign up for my first philosophy course due to the influence of one of the rabbis there who had been a tenured professor of philosophy at Johns Hopkins University, uh, specializing in the philosophy of mathematics, but then became a Bostoner Hasid and then a rabbi and he quit academia and not now teaches in the yeshiva. Very smart guy. Uh, and uh, I guess it was, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, so I hadn't really met anyone with radically different views from everybody I knew. And everybody was basically some kind of liberal, uh, atheist, a lot of people went to Hebrew school, but of course that was just a joke. Uh, even the rabbis were atheists at the, the Reformed temples. Now, I, when I went to, to Israel, my understanding of Judaism had, was based largely on personal study and was, I was, uh, was very influenced by Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And that was my 
understanding of Judaism when I arrived in Israel. And then it was really a shock to discover how different um, authentic Judaism was from my, uh, my understanding. And the fact that people actually believed these things that are so different from what I believed and what anyone I knew believed. And that was a learning experience. I think a lot of liberals who, who spent their whole life in a liberal environment, they think deep down everybody's a liberal, everybody is like them, and they don't have the imagination uh, to understand that some people really are different and they really have different and totally incompatible beliefs. And I was like that when I was 17. And, and then when I was 18, I went to Israel and I, um, I was able to, to recognize that, that bias. And so that was valuable. Um, uh, to, to what extent, if at all, does your Jewish identity uh, blind you to objective reality of the Arab-Israeli conflict? I don't, when it comes to objective facts, I don't think I have any, I don't see what the, the biases are. If somebody shows me evidence that Palestinians are more closely descended from Israel, uh, related to Israelites than than I am or other Jewish groups. I don't, there's no, no resistance. I, that, that's very bad news for the, for the Zionist position that, that creates complexities, unwelcome complexities for the Zionist position. I have no problem accepting those, those things as soon as somebody suggests them, it presents evidence. Um, when Israel um, has, uh, expels Palestinians, the fact that Palestinians were expelled from Israel, which is an inconvenient fact, doesn't, no, no problem for me to, to acknowledge that. So I, I don't know what, I, I can't, how can I say there's no bias? I, I just don't, I just don't see it. I don't have any reason to feel that I'm biased. Uh, the I think the American news media and America as a nation and American discussions about Israel tend to lean much more in a pro-Israel direction than what happens in Europe. Ha have you noticed a, a difference? For example, I believe that Zionist is largely considered a dirty word in Europe. Uh, Zionist is not considered a dirty word in the United States. Yeah, I do sometimes watch clips of the BBC and Channel 4 and yeah, they're they're definitely anti-Israel. Muslims have a lot more influence in the UK, and I assume uh, in Europe as well than than Jews do. Uh, so I I, I suspect that um, Muslims have the kind of influence in the UK that Jews have in America. That would be my impression. Uh, would you agree that uh, the American news media presents a, a pro-Israel slant uh, more often than not, and that uh, American politics 
is somewhat uh, influenced by the Israel lobby. Do you, do you agree that there is an Israel lobby in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm not an expert on the mechanics of the Israel lobby. I mean, there are a lot of um, um, so I can't comment on the details of that, but I, I know there, there are a lot of interest groups that are pro-Israel in the United States for various reasons. Um, Christian support for Israel is certainly important. And um, I don't, my impression is that this level of pro-Israelism would not exist uh, if it weren't for the Christian evangelical uh, attitudes toward Israel. But and of course, the, you know, politics is, is influenced by, by lobbying groups on both sides. Uh, so, yeah. So it, it was surprising to me after 9-11 that there wasn't an upswell in anti-Israel sentiment, given that Osama bin Laden said one of the reasons he attacked the U.S. on 9-11 on was because of American support for Israel. Uh, plenty of people like uh, John Mearsheimer have made the case that American support for Israel is not good for America. Certainly seems to have played a role in precipitating 9-11 attacks. Now we've got President Joe Biden flying to Israel in a time of war, which is virtually unprecedented. I can't imagine any other major American politician doing something. We've got two major aircraft carriers moving through the, the Mediterranean closer to Israel. Do you have any concerns that uh, the pro-Israel lobby has uh, been so effective that it has steered American policy against America's best interests? Well, first, I would um, question what America's interests are. What does that mean? I mean, as far as I can tell, the interests of America just refers to the, there is no interest of America. There's all Americans and Americans are interested in various things. Some of them are interested in Israel. So that would be part of the, what happens. Some of them are interested in Ireland. Some of them are interested in Italy or Saudi Arabia. So, a lot of Americans would care what if um, Israel were wiped off the map, and so therefore that counts toward American interest. However, we want to add up all of that interest. Um, and I mean, clearly, Israel is an ally uh, of the US in a region where some other countries are not allies. And, um, there are some benefit, although I'm sure that the Israel lobby may exaggerate it, but that doesn't sound like a um, completely hallucinated benefit to the U.S. beyond the interest that many Americans have in, uh, in Israel for its own sake. And if Israel were 
uh, it's like the the war in Ukraine, which I think uh, the, the liberal establishment has played this. It looks like they they ended up playing this really well, although it has been and still is a very dangerous situation. And I think even now we're probably closer to nuclear war than we've ever been since World War II. Uh, I mean, we came very close uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but uh, you know, even then, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, neither side wanted nuclear war. But now in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, it's becoming almost rational, or there are some there are some scenarios where it may even be rational for Russia to use nuclear weapons. But assuming we win this round of Russian roulette, uh, then I think the liberal establishment will come on top, having uh, supported Ukraine and now defeating Russia and discrediting the Russian political system and uh, also intimidating China. And a similar result, I think, would occur if Israel comes out uh, victorious with the support of uh, the United States. Uh, do you think there can be any lasting peace without uh, giving Palestinians their own independent state? You know, and I don't mean uh, e Egypt, uh, Syria, Jordan, but their own independent state. So the thing is, they already have two independent states, which are Syria and Jordan, and those were Palestine. There's no ethnic difference. But okay, if they want a third state. The, the problem with that is, at least in surveys, a huge percentage say that they don't accept Israel's right to exist. So what's the point of setting up a Palestinian state if 30% of the population is going to be calling for war forever, because as long as Israel, as there is any Jewish state at all, um, and that that 30% of the population will be lined up on the border firing rockets and Israel will have a fence and every so often they'll be able to breach the fence and go and massacre uh, civilians. I don't see how, uh, how peace is, uh, how, how creating a, a third Palestinian state would, um, would be, make that much of a difference to the peace process. Uh, let me challenge you. I, I assume you don't believe that there is an essentialism to, to Palestinians or to Jews that, uh, for example, that the Palestinians, a substantial portion of them are just inherently uh, violent people. To, to whatever extent they want to destroy a Jewish state, isn't that a product of you know, contingent circumstances change the circumstances and you'll, you'll change the people? Or do you believe that there are inherent qualities of a predisposition to violence among a substantial portion of the Palestinian people? Well, I think that if you exchanged uh, the average Palestinian child and the average uh, Israeli child, if they got mixed up in the hospital and one was raised in Gaza and one was raised in Tel Aviv, 
that they would they would basically act like the people in their environment. Like, um, I don't think that there, I'm sure there are genetic differences on average that dispose, give them different dispositions, but um, they're not you know, enormous. Although even small differences might then be amplified on a population level, but leaving that aside, yeah, in principle, uh, there's no question that Palestinians could be uh, could be brought up with a different ideology that didn't lead to this result. The question is, is it is it possible to create those conditions where they would they would grow up differently? I mean, without uh, you could but to do that it seems you would have to um, either uh, raise them not to be Muslim or to have no cultural memory of, of previous events so I don't see practically how that's going to work Yes, in principle, they could be, everybody could be raised, or at least they could, Israelis and Palestinians could be uh, brought up with some different ideology that didn't lead them to, to fight with each other. And I just don't see the path to getting there. Okay, so when we know that someone is a Jew, or we know that someone is a Muslim, we know almost nothing about them, even if we're talking about uh, 10,000 Jews and 10,000 Muslims, because uh, Muslims in Southeast Asia are very different from you know, Pakistani and Afghan Muslims, like Muslims all around the world, are very different from each other. So too, Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews and Mizrahi Jews, uh, they're you know, about as different as you know, Scandinavians and indigenous Mexicans. So would you, would you agree with that, that just knowing that uh, you've got large numbers of a group of Jews or a large number of a group of uh, Muslims, you really don't know anything unless you know further details about them because Jews and Muslims vary so much? Um, you mean in terms of their genetic predispositions? Well, just forget gen genetics, just real, um, real world life outcomes uh, Mizrahi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews have very different real-world life outcomes for whatever reason. And so, too, uh, Muslims in South Asia, for example, create you know, very different uh, communities than, say, Muslims in Afghanistan or, or Pakistan. So it, it, I, I'm just making, I guess, the, the liberal left argument that there's some wisdom to their idea that there's no such thing as an essential Islam or an essential Judaism or, or Jewish identity, it depends upon time and place and, and uh, the, the, the makeup of the people. Right. So I'm talking about the Palestinian people, the, that population. And Islam varies, the interpretation of Islam. I mean, it varies to some extent, but there is a common core. Um, and I don't think there's any mainstream interpretation of Islam 
that would welcome uh, a Jewish state on what was previously Muslim-controlled land. So, yeah, man, hypothetically, they could come up with a new version of, or radically new interpretation of Islam that, that makes all this okay. And maybe that's not even so far-fetched because there are some Arab countries that are apparently willing to make peace with Israel. But when we're talking about the people who, who actually lived, who are descended from the people who were actually living on that land, then it might be harder for them to accept the, the Jewish state than it is for Egyptians or Saudi Arabians. Uh, would you agree that circumstances are just as likely to predict uh, behavior as genetics, meaning nurture and environment situation, you know, shape uh, behavior approximately as much as genetics? Well, there's no such thing as genetics or environment. There's an interaction of genetics and environment. So, so, so precisely, the environment does profoundly affect how how uh, people express themselves. So change the situation, you change people. For example, if you're running late to an important appointment, I, I can predict all sorts of behavioral uh, traits that you will have if you're running late to, you will not you know, tend to be empathic and, and kind and, and generous. You will be very driven to get to your important appointment. And so that's just a particular situation where people, when they're late to, a, to an important appointment, they tend to demonstrate certain traits because the situation has changed. So I, I don't find it outlandish to believe that if you simply change the situation for Palestinians, that many of these uh, desires to slaughter Jews will change. Yeah, I, I think there is a possible world where the 2006 elections had gone differently and they went down a different path and they started to experience uh, more prosperity and then this kind of they realized that a, a large part of the population realized that um, this was a more promising route than endless war with Israel yeah I, I guess that 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 could have happened but I mean starting from right now because this is not 2006 in, in 2023 we're a very long way away from creating conditions where that choice will even realistically be possible. Uh, George Gilder wrote a book in 2009 called The Israel Test. He says the Israel Test is a moral challenge. It can be summarized by a few questions. One, what is your attitude toward people who excel you, whether in the creation of wealth or in other accomplishments? Two, do you aspire to their level of excellence or do you seethe at it? And three, do you admire and celebrate exceptional achievement or do you impugn it and seek to tear it down? The Israel test, do you think this is, this is an important moral challenge? Yeah, I, I, uh, I do. I, I don't, for most people, um, uh, the morality of resentment doesn't have a lot of payoffs, so uh, I should probably would be advised to reject it. 
So you're fairly active on, on Twitter. Are there any interlocutors who particularly have your respect or who you feel you've learned from? I mean, I've learned a tremendous amount from Twitter about all sorts of things. Um, about, uh, I got a lot of information from Twitter. Um, I've learned a lot about communication. Uh, it's interesting to see how people interpret what you say immediately after you write it. Um, my uh, my work on Jews was um, significantly informed by conversations with uh, all sorts of people on Twitter. So, yeah, I I, I like Twitter. I, not I don't I don't know if I want to single out particular individuals, but the, uh, the, uh, the whole exchange and, uh, and interaction I find, uh, I find interesting. Uh, a lot of people can't handle Twitter. They end up tweeting things that ruin their lives. Uh, any guidance on the responsible use of Twitter, particularly for academics? A lot of people err on the side of caution. I think we we don't hear about those cases because nobody, the Chronicle of Higher Education doesn't write an article about, you know, uh, academic refrains from tweeting his opinion, that kind of vanilla opinion about some um, topic because he's so afraid of any kind of criticism. Uh, but for people who are bolder than that, um, obviously, be careful of sarcasm, jokes, because um, these can be interpreted in ways that you don't even expect. People, being active on Twitter teaches you uh, uh, about people's capacity for for misunderstanding and misinterpretation um, in a way that that you um, wouldn't otherwise uh, really understand. Uh, obviously, be careful about um, criticizing individuals, especially if the individual can be considered lower status than you. Uh, that's important if you're an academic. Uh, um, but I, I think, yeah, mo most people I would uh, encourage to be more bold uh, and take more risks. And if you do we, this applies not only to Twitter, but in all areas of life. If you do take a controversial position, don't be apologetic about it. Don't deny that you said it. Don't use weasel words uh, to give yourself plausible deniability. And then when people, people accuse you of saying what we all know you meant to say, then you say, no, I never would say that. Actually, a lot of 
cancellations, probably people are much, I would definitely people are more likely to be canceled if they try to, if they apologize and try to pretend that they don't believe what they believe and that they didn't say what they said. Um, so if you, if you just, if you are confident in what you, what you believe and you say it clearly, um, there's less risk than people often realize. Uh, you know, a lot of people um, think that they're going to be canceled if they like a tweet about a controversial topic or if they um, they say anything anything at all controversial. It's really, uh, yeah, that that rarely happens. What do you think is the realistic potential for Palestinian IQ? Let's say they, they get a situation that is conducive to their thriving. We have various surveys putting Palestinian IQ around uh, 85, uh, truly getting into the 90s in a more optimal circumstance. Do you, do you think that's, that's a, a reasonable assumption? Uh, so obviously they're not reaching their IQ potential right now. Um, so whatever the, the data say now is less than what it could be. I mean, my best guess would be something in the you know mid nineties, but that's very. Uh, we just don't have have the data to answer that question, and it's very, very hard or impossible to make um, to compare the uh, innate intellectual capacity of populations based on. Uh, country level IQ, because I mean, that's so sensitive to environmental factors. I mean, you have to compare population representative samples of people who are raised under comparable environments, uh, ideally in the same, the same environment or as much as possible, like um, you know, African-Americans and white Americans, um, uh, or ideally, uh, including cross-racial adoption uh, studies. We can't just give people in Gaza an IQ test and draw conclusions from that. So I don't know, my guess would be in the mid nineties because that's sort of the trend for, for people in the region, but I don't know what, what it really is. So you quote tweet a Jewish leftist, A. Graby, he says, I don't think non-Jews really grasp that Jewish people's fundamental social trust has been permanently undermined. We now know that our company's DEI officers would gleefully celebrate our deaths if we were killed by the right people. And you summarize his tweet accurately. Jews now know that DEI means it's okay to kill Jews. This changes everything. And then a few hours later, he, he says, I'm never going to stop respecting pronouns and voting for the, for the Democrats because conservatives are, are racist. Uh, do you think that the events of October 7 and their aftermath are going to change many minds on the, the Jewish left? The thing is, uh, 
you know, white liberals have been uh, targeted, maybe not quite like this, but uh, on a smaller scale, this has happened to white liberals. Um, in many cases of you know, atrocious hate crimes against uh, whites. And that doesn't seem to have changed anything um, in the white Gentile liberals' minds. So, um, so it's, it's possible that liberal Jews will be similarly resistant. Although a lot of uh, um, uh, Muslims, non-white Muslims, and Blacks don't have the same hang-ups about using the word Jew specifically to describe what they don't like, whereas um, there's a big taboo on, on saying anything bad about Jews per se uh, in the old-fashioned liberalism. So, I mean, if they're openly saying that they hate Jews, and even using the word Jew, if we get to that point, which I think is possible, I, I'm not saying we, we definitely will, but I think it's possible that in a few years we could start start seeing start seeing more of that. Then I feel like there has to be some response. Liberal Jews can't deny reality to that degree. I think. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Now, the young generation of Jews might be more, more open-minded. I mean, these Jewish, you know, liberals, the, the boomer liberals, it doesn't matter if they're being beheaded by Hamas, their last words will be about the, the Trump Nazis, anti-Semites are, they're responsible for this, right? So there's nothing you can say to them. They will never give it up. Uh, but among among Zoomer liberal Jews, maybe uh, I think it will be uh, it will be a different story. But they'll be much less influential than Jews were in the past because first there are a lot fewer Jews than there used to be, uh, and they're not going to have much influence on the left uh, anyway, so they're not going to be very high profile if they try to um, to construct some new non-anti-Semitic version of leftism. They're not going to have that much influence. So they could join, the, some of them will join the conservative movement uh, and uh, they're likely to be more, more visible in the coming generation. So I recently wrote an article about this called Twilight of the Liberal Jew, where I suggest that over time, uh, the prominent, uh, prominent Jews are gonna be more and more conservative, which we already see to some extent, like among the most prominent Jews uh, under the age of 40, like Ben Shapiro and the lips of TikTok, Woman. Do you have any thoughts on the repercussions of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling effectively 
banning explicit race-based affirmative action in college admissions? Well, there, you're still allowed to write about race in your essay. Um, so that's a big loophole because everyone's going to write about race in their essay and then that will be used. People who write about race, about being black, will be scored as having great essays. Um, and I, I doubt that if, if admissions were just based on meritocracy, there would be almost no blacks at top universities. I don't think that this will be accepted. People cannot accept this. Uh, they'll find some 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 way of bringing them, bringing them back. Uh, anything going on in either a, a positive or a negative direction with Jonathan Hyde and Heterodox Academy? So, as people may know, I wrote an article four reasons why Heterodox Academy failed, which got some attention um, earlier this year. Uh, so a lot of people agreed with the, the critiques and a lot of people are not happy about the performance of Heterodox Academy, which has obviously became a uh, controlled opposition. They, uh, they purged everybody doing actually controversial work and they just promote sort of uh, um, mainstream liberals who talk about their supposed commitment to free inquiry, but nobody's actually saying anything controversial. No controversial people are actually invited or allowed to give talks there. But there wasn't um, uh, although a lot of people agreed with me, then not much happened afterwards. I wrote a follow-up article um, called How to Take Back Academia, which I thought was more important than the original article because it explained what actually we need to do, but that got much less attention and um, ho hopefully people discover it in the future because I think this is the only way uh, to take back academia is to follow the, the plan that I described in that article. That was published in Dorian Abbott's Substack. This is called the uh, Heterodox Stem. Uh, certainly, yeah. The, yeah, the current strategy is not working at all. It will never work. Uh, but that's people want to stick with doing what's comfortable. And do you see any positive signs of uh, moving in the direction of taking back the academy? No, not at all. Now, what are we doing? I mean, uh, we've done nothing. I mean, the Supreme Court decision was nice, but if you have dissident views, you can't be hired by a normal department. Um, journals are basically captured entirely. Uh, we don't have anyone on campus to to push back and the only uh, the only somewhat positive development is 
so in some red, red states, they created these special institutes um, at the universities that are supposed to be conservative friendly, but um, without getting into the details, I mean, a lot of them have been taken over by wokesters as soon as they're created or they, they're not really focusing on what I would consider to be the important issues. So yeah, it's not looking good. And uh, how do you like this uh, definition of uh, woke, that uh, certain groups uh, should be off limits to public criticism? No, I, I don't. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm, I agree with that. There, there have always been groups that are off limits to criticism. So uh, and if you said that white heterosexual males are off limits to criticism and that would conform to the definition, but that wouldn't be anything that we recognize as woke. So my understanding of wokeism is that it's what logically follows from taking the equality thesis seriously and combined with certain uh, widely accepted moral assumptions. So you think everybody is literally the same. So a, uh, African-American in the inner city has exactly the same average potential as a Korean born in Silicon Valley. It's exactly the same. And the different outcomes are the result of some sort of social forces. Then the most, it follows that the most urgent moral project is to correct this environmental uh, forces that are causing the terrible outcomes among certain groups, especially blacks uh, and uh, other certain minorities. And so then this leads to look at fighting racism. And once you've gotten rid of all the racism that you can identify, but the disparities are still there. So you need to look for more hidden racism and you, you know, maybe it's uh, the micro microaggressions you use the wrong facial expression when you talk to to a black person or it's the statue there's a picture of a white man and, and the white man had politically incorrect views about race so maybe that that influences certain people not to perform as well you're led down this path just based on belief in the equality thesis. So that's why uh, any opposition to wokeism that doesn't attack the equality thesis is not going not gonna to work. So you know many dissident uh, intellectuals with some similarity in worldview to yourself. Uh, some of them, when they receive public attention, they fold, they they apologize disappear, they delete all their heterodox publications to the extent possible. Uh, others seem to be able to, you know, navigate from an outside perspective seems, you know, a reasonable life. Uh, what can you tell me about uh, dissident intellectuals, how they 
dissident intellectuals largely in line with you know your your own research and worldview. What can you tell me about how they manage to navigate a reality that's frequently hostile to them? Um, well, of course, uh, academia selects strongly for timidity and conformity, and at every level, from kindergarten to grade school, college, graduate school, professorship, uh, you're rewarded for going with, for adopting the popular view and flattering your professors and doing your homework and not making trouble. Uh, and th so that selects for a certain kind of personality, which isn't necessarily uh, the kind of personality that would lead you to take a, uh, a, a, a position on, on a controversial topic and say what you think is true, even though people are going to say mean things about you or even uh, try to expel you from, from the academy. Uh, now there is, so there is that, that filtering mechanism and uh, it is much harder to make it in academia if, uh, if you behave that way. I've been, um, there's certainly been an element of luck in my um, my ability to make it uh, as far as I have. Uh, I get easily at certain critical moments have been unlucky and then uh, I'm not sure what, what would have happened. Uh, but people just need to start to, I don't know, does it help for me to say this, but people just need to stop being afraid to, to realize that they may have to pay some, some personal cost to taking a stand, but it's worth it. The cost, the cost, will be real, although it may be less than they anticipate. I think to be an intellectual in the style that I aspire to be, uh, one has to be comfortable with, um, with the possibility of being in the minority and being potentially ostracized. Now, as a matter of fact, I have, a, I have many friends and, and I don't feel ostracized. But if I didn't have many friends, I would still do the same thing. Even if everybody were against me, I would say what I believe. Um, I can't teach people to have my personality, but uh, I would encourage people to, to recognize that the consequences of speaking the truth are not necessarily as bad as they think. Uh, and if everyone starts doing it, then there will actually be a change. Well, I, I would hope that you would only encourage certain people to start saying 
unpopular truths because a great deal of people simply don't have a life situation or the personality that's cut out for being ostracized. So academia selects for conformity, which is, of course, the opposite of what it should select for. Uh, but it would be very hard to select for the opposite of conformity, because whatever you're selecting for, I mean, then you, you create incentives to be like, to meet the criteria that you, uh, that you established, and so only conformists then would, would meet the new criteria. So I don't know. Maybe there's maybe it's impossible to to not select for conformity. Uh, but you also have to to practice uh, taking. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with being disliked, and. I have, in many cases, put myself in a position where I knew that I would be surrounded by people who don't like me and who disagree with me, and that that would be that would feel uncomfortable, and that that was healthy to develop the habit of being able to do that. So there was a certain there was a certain amount of training involved, and I think that. Now, this is one of the ideas behind the, uh, uh, you know, the, the ritual when the priests in the Bible are, uh, are being uh, uh, confirmed into the, the priesthood. There's a ritual where they're saying this was what precipitated the Korah rebellion. Right? They're, they're shaved and then they're waved. I guess they're held up and waved. And one of the, the comments on this is that they looked ridiculous, that this whole procedure looked ridiculous. But that was to teach them a lesson that if you were gonna be a leader, then you need to be willing to seem ridiculous uh, and to have people they laugh at you or look down on you. Uh, so I, I, I think that um, there's a deep lesson there. Uh, how, how big of a problem is it that it tends to be socially marginalized and anti-social people or low in agreeableness who are most attracted to socially marginalized intellectual endeavors. And so if you've got ideas that are on the margins, it will tend to be marginalized antisocial people who will be most uh, likely to take them up. And therefore, such people will tend to be really poor public representatives of such ideas. Yeah, I've been meaning to write an article on this topic. Uh, this is a very uh, important phenomenon. But once you take some something that's maybe obviously true, obviously correct, but you make a taboo out of it, then who is gonna tell the truth about this thing? It will be uh, people who are 
so disturbed that they, they don't even know what they're doing. There'll be people who are just trying to provoke a reaction. Uh, people who maybe are attracted to the thing for actually bad motives. Um, uh, they have some ulterior reason. And then the last category would be people who actually are interested in the truth and, and are, uh, right? And then another important category is people who want to make a name for themselves, but they can't compete with uh, in, in the mainstream. So they would rather swim in this smaller pond uh, of people who produce commentary about the taboo, the taboo topic. Uh, and so that they can at least be big fish in this smaller community. Uh, and then when outsiders look at this, all the people who are part of the, the taboo community, they see a lot of um, a lot of kind of unattractive elements there, and that makes it much harder to tell the truth about the taboo thing than it would otherwise be. Uh, you, you chose to devote uh, more than a year of your life to deconstructing Kevin McDonald's theories on Jews and Judaism. Uh, once you went down that path, that also, do you, do you sense that that pulled you along into a certain tide or, or flow or, or direction that uh, you know, shifted your life? You chose a particular scholarly endeavor, and then by virtue of embracing that scholarly endeavor, that endeavor is now shaping your life. Certainly, I, I was influenced by that. I'm, so um, after I was, uh, I received an MPhil in History and Philosophy of Science from Cambridge in 2016. And then I was unexpectedly rejected from the Cambridge PhD program, which I was sure I was going to be admitted to. And I didn't have time to apply to other programs uh, uh, before that, because I hadn't, uh, after that, because I hadn't bothered to take the GRE, which was necessary only for American schools. So uh, I had a year off uh, in between, uh, then I, uh, the year later, I was admitted to the Oxford uh, PhD program, but I had a year in between. And I wrote five papers. Uh, the one on McDonald was just one of the five. Uh, I also wrote the one on uh, race differences in intelligence, which was published in Philosophical Psychology, one on vegetarianism, one on uh, yeah, coerc uh, paternalism and intelligence, and then a fifth, which uh, wasn't published. Uh, so this, I didn't know that the, uh, the paper on McDonald would generate the response that it did. And I expected McDonald would reply. Uh, and I thought that 
then I would write a rejoinder and then that would be it. And um, that turned out not to be what happened. Uh, so I devoted much more time than I uh, than I expected to that topic, uh, but um, I've said uh, by, at this point I've said most of what I want to say about Jews specifically. I'm still uh, now I'm I'm very much interested in the question of where these ideas actually came from, uh, where why liberalism uh, triumphed in the 20th century, uh, what the future of liberalism is. And uh, I feel that to my satisfaction, I've ruled out the, the, uh, the Jewish theory that, that this was all uh, Jews seeking to advance their, their interests. But perhaps this helped lead me uh, to my current interest in that, in that topic. I have to thank you for your essay on vegetarianism and the dangers thereof. I've been a lifelong vegetarian by force of habit, not uh, really out of volition. And you kind of woke me up that this was pretty dangerous for my health. And so I struggled for years to try to find ways to ingest meat when I, my body has such a strong reaction against the very possibility of meat. Then approximately two years ago, I saw on Amazon grass-fed beef organ capsules and I swear, Nathan, within two weeks of taking six beef organ capsules every day, all my lifelong health problems just disappeared. Now, it could be entirely a placebo effect, but uh, it was incredibly powerful. I had a lifetime of poor health as a vegetarian, and now I'm, you know, I feel strong. And, and you know, I'm able to work out and do everything physically that I, that I want to do. So I assume some other people were probably influenced by your article on vegetarianism as well. No, no, I, I know that that had a lot of reach. It's been downloaded probably 75,000 times. And it was covered by the BBC in an article, which also got a lot of attention. A lot of people have, have said that they uh, question the vegetarian that led them to question vegetarian propaganda. And I wrote the, the paper that I would have wanted to read when I was a vegetarian. Um, just like I, I tried to write the, the paper about race that I would have wanted to wanted to read when I was a, 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 an environmentalist. Um, but yeah, I, and obviously, Everyone's different. People respond to different to diets differently, but uh, for most people, vegetarianism is a terrible idea. And there's some uh, some conflicting uh, evidence about the so-called placebo effect. Uh, there's a view that it's not even real, uh, but I think even people who say that it's real think that it doesn't last more than like six months is my understanding. So if it's, if the effect, if the benefit has lasted more than that, then it's very unlikely. I, I, it's pretty safe to say that it's real. Uh, do you think that you would have been able to do your dissident work if you were a more outgoing social personality or has 
doing the distant work, you know, kind of push you away from socializing? It's not not the dissident work, it's the work. Uh, um, work takes a lot of work. And um, that means less time for other things. There, there are a lot of dissident, there, there's a, a large dissident community. Um, not large, but, you know, I, I've, I have plenty of uh, friends. Um, but uh, I do focus a, a lot on on the work, and uh, and that leaves uh, less time and energy for for other things. So, how much time do you spend on your academic work as opposed to your popular productions on on Twitter, Substack, and uh, other publications? The the popular stuff is a very tiny percentage of my uh, my time. I mean, I, I lately I've been tweeting a fair, for me what's a lot, like a couple, sometimes a couple times a day. I, I often reply to people more than that, but a couple times. But uh, not, I could go a few weeks without tweeting. Uh, uh, I. Uh, that's not my main focus. I, I spend most of my time on philosophy papers that um, don't necessarily have uh, the same kind of audience as uh, uh, popular popular articles. Although sometimes my, my academic work actually be, um, is it's not clear where to draw the line between the academic and the popular because a lot of my papers, my academic papers have on average more than 20,000 downloads each. So, I mean, that's a respectable record, even if you're writing on Substack, uh, just uh, popular oriented work. But yeah, most of my time is in the last, uh, couple of years, I spent a huge amount of time on a paper in uh, meta-ethics about the evolution of morality and the implications for the nature of, uh, of, for the question of whether morality is real or in what sense morality is objectively real. Um, I just uh, spent a recently over the last couple of months, my main uh, focus has been on paper in evolutionary theory, which uh, I would say, I, I, in my view, answers some important questions, but it's not, not may not have as much appeal as uh, uh, a magazine article. Now, usually academics who achieve the level of uh, popular attention that you, you've received aren't really getting much resonance in the academic community. How is the academic community, if at all, wrestling with your work? Uh, in philosophy, it's, there's definitely a lot of people who've read at least some of my work. And in philosophy, everybody, I think, heard about the 
the philosophical psychology paper. That was dominated the philosophy news for a few weeks. Um, then people know about, some philosophers know about uh, my paper in Philosophia uh, on McDonald. Then McDonald wrote a reply, which was retracted, and, and one of the journal editors quit, and the other it's not clear whether he retired or left for some reason. Uh, but there's certainly um, a political element to whose work is recognized in philosophy. There definitely have been instances where people um, uh, go out of their way not to acknowledge something that I've done uh, not to cite me, uh, which uh, I guess is is annoying, but uh, I'm not too invested in in uh, that kind of recognition. Um, it's a little bit ironic that uh, Kevin McDonald's work did not receive serious academic attention until you came along about uh, 20 years later after it was first published. It might be ironic if your work does not receive serious academic scrutiny for 20 years after you first started you know, publishing your most important articles. Um. That would be an interesting parallel, I suppose. Uh, but, but except in my case, it won't be refuted. It will be confirmed. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, any any final words? Anything that you can add about your areas of academic research that you haven't already mentioned that we might uh, you know hope to to read in the next few years? Well, and there, there are different communities who believe that I, who associate me only with one aspect of my work that they're familiar with. So you know, for some people, I'm just the racist, and for others, I'm the Jewish apologist, and for others, I'm the vegetarian, anti-vegetarian guy. And for, for a smaller group, maybe knows me from my philosophy of biology work and then meta-ethics work. Um, uh, and then I, at the National Conservatism Conference, several people knew who I was because of the heterodox, only because of the Heterodox Academy article. Uh, so um, I, there aren't many people who will be interested in all of those things. But uh, guess what I spend. Mm, a lot of my time, most of my time on is uh, the academic papers. Um, if people are interested in uh, uh, the question, the, the, the field of meta-ethics is concerned with uh, the nature of morality and whether it's real or it's just in our minds. Uh, I defend the view that it's uh, morality is not real. It's the product of uh, our moral beliefs are the product of non-truth tracking forces and there's no reason uh, and they should be 
re rejected as unjustified. So I have some some papers on that. Um, I'm particularly interested in why the question of why there's been cross-cultural convergence on liberalism. So one explanation for cross-cultural convergence on liberalism is that liberalism is just objectively correct. So everybody's been has recognized the objective correctness of liberalism and we converged on liberalism for the same reason we converged on scientific beliefs like the earth is round because it is round. So I provide what are called debunking explanations for this kind of thing. So uh, I explain convergence on liberalism in a way that doesn't posit objective moral truth. And so therefore we can uh, reject objective moral truth as ontologically superfluous. Uh, so uh, some of my work that the, uh, the present, uh, some of the listeners uh, may not be familiar with. Yeah. Do, do you have any thoughts on Richard Hanania? He seems to have successfully navigated being outed as you know somewhat vulgar white nationalist when he was younger, and he seemed to have made an effective apology. He seems to have published an acclaimed book. Any thoughts on Hanania and how he navigated his outing? He he did that very well. Uh, I mean, he had um, it's it, it's fortunate for him that his uh, his views, which I, I'm not insinuating that they're insincere, just his his views on topics like immigration and, and that sort of thing, um, put him in a, a certain camp that. That certainly aided his defense, uh, but he was very skillful in how he handled that. Um, and it's true that generally you shouldn't apologize, but if you, in his case, the apology was the wise thing to do because I think he really doesn't hold those the beliefs of Richard Holst anymore, and uh, so it made sense for him to explain why why he why he thought that way and why he currently doesn't uh, yeah so that yeah that he, he he handled that very well a very common uh, critique by the people on the alt-right is that jews have zero empathy for europeans but uh, europeans have considerable empathy for jews I don't think there's much difference in empathy and political orientation between European non-Jews and European Jews once you account for levels of IQ and um, secular education. What do you think? Well, if the argument is that this is an innate difference, I mean, Europeans have showed themselves to be more than capable of not empathizing with people uh, under the right conditions. Um, currently, do, do Jews have less empathy for European nationalist aspirations than the converse? I mean, it's not really comparing like with like. Uh, 
a lot of people perceive me as saying that Jews didn't do anything wrong and there's nothing wrong with Jews, which is, has never been my view and never been something that I've said or implied. Uh, Jews are, there are many Jews who are a big part of the problem uh, and I've called them out. I, I continue to call them out. Uh, there are white Gentiles who are a big part of the problem and I call them out as well. I Most of what's happening in Europe that is disliked by the nationalists was orchestrated by the Europeans themselves. Um, countries without Jews or with very few Jews have generally behaved similarly to countries with more Jewish influence. So um, trying to pin the blame on Jews specifically is, uh, I think, a, a mistake, both empirically and strategically. Although in the short term, from a strategic point of view, you can kind of get people excited about being anti-Semitic. But I mean, at least now, that uh, as of now, that doesn't have such widespread appeal, except among like, the Muslims, who they don't, the alt writers don't like either. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think that I, I'm not saying there's no Jewish question, that there's not, there's no, there's nothing to see, that we shouldn't talk about this, we shouldn't comment on, on bad Jewish behavior, but people who, who think that that's the key to understanding everything, yeah, um, that's a big mistake. Yeah. Okay, Nathan, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving me two and a half hours of your time this morning. Good to talk to you. Okay, take care, man. Bye-bye.